My name is Rabbi David Young. I work here. I am very, very happy to welcome you to Congregation B'nai Tzedek. We are always very excited to welcome the Community Scholar Program. Uh, because of all of the wonderful synagogues in Orange County and that there are only 31 days in January, there's only enough space on the calendar to give everybody one shot at the, at the Community Scholar Program. And so we said this year, we would really like a program on Jews in the best state in the union. So unfortunately, he, he's not speaking in Ohio. Instead, instead we'll be learning about uh, California Jews. So we're very excited to welcome Professor Mark Dollinger this evening. Um, Dr. Dollinger is a, a professor at San Francisco State University. He's an author and an expert in the fields of Jews and American politics, American Zionism, and California Jews. Uh, we, he serves as the academic vice president of Lairhouse Judaica, and he is a trustee at URJ's Camp Newman. Thank you very much for that. My wife and I both serve as faculty there, so we're very happy. And all three of our children are campers. Very excited about that. Um, he sits on the California Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Uh, and has a variety of awards, including the San Francisco Jewish Community Relation Council's 2015 Courageous Leader Award for his work against BDS, which is a very, very important work, so we thank you for that as well. So um, without further ado, you should have uh, a, a, uh, an, an outline to follow along, and we will be opening for questions um, later on in the program. So without further ado, Professor Mark Dollinger, thank you so much for being here. And now to tell you about Ohio. Okay, that being complete, we'll move on to California. <laughs> my sister went to Case Western Reserve University, graduate school in Cleveland, so we'll, that, that will be my Ohio connection. So uh, this is the engagement, or the wedding photo actually, New Year's Eve 1905 to 1906 of my great-grandparents, Albert and Sarah Dollinger. And, uh, and this begins with their story. When the family was in Eastern Europe in the 1880s, as perhaps many of, the, of your ancestors, if they came from Eastern Europe as well, um, kind of, everyone kind of went to New York, uh, Ellis Island, the famous stories, and the rest of it. My family was told by the friends and family that had emigrated before they said, if you want to be poor all your life, go to New York. If you want to be rich, go to the other side, meaning California, where the gold rush, which would have happened about 25 years before this, was bringing incredible amounts of people and Jews and wealth and acceptance. So um, with that, um, they took the journey to California, to San Francisco, and to Los Angeles. Good evening, Erev Tov, great to see you all, especially on a, on a night of, of rain. Um, thank you for, uh, for, for coming out. You have in front of you a, um, an outline. So if we could look at the outline, the first thing I'm gonna do is go to the historical question, and you'll look on the screen and see tonight's historical, oh wait, 
you don't see the historical question. It looks as if a photograph has made it into my PowerPoint demonstration on California Jews. Hark, I wonder what has happened. Let me turn and see. Whoa, look, it's the Community Scholar Program Hat Challenge. Yes, if you are not yet aware, I am here for the month of January all the way through um, Orange County and uh, with the Community Scholars Program. And uh, there is the CSP hat challenge. So if you, and actually if we have a, if you could demonstrate the CSP hat here, there it is, right? Uh, so if you have a CSP hat or you'd like to get one and, and, and join the organization, you can wear the hat, get a picture taken, send it to, uh, to Ari, there's Ari, um, who's running the whole thing, and uh, you could win a prize. I'm just telling you that uh, not to inspire, not to intimidate you, maybe to inspire you, I have already submitted two uh, hat challenge photographs, even in the time that I've been here. And uh, there's another hat challenge photograph to uh, inspire you a more. And, uh, and there's our third entry. So with this, we'll go to our historical question. Um, how, so what I do with my undergrads, they get a sheet. It has the question we're focused on for tonight, why are we here? It has my thesis, which you can feel free to disagree with. I encourage my students to disagree with me because my specialty is Jews and politics. So I think it's really important that they learn critical thinking. I give them a half a grade bonus if they write a paper that disagrees with whatever I wrote on the outline. That's because I usually give them the argument you know, in favor of me so it's a harder case to make. And I'm also telling the truth. So I think they should get a bonus anyway. Um, so our question today is how does the California Jewish historical experience prove significant? And uh, we tend to have in California, most of the audience tends to be not born or raised in California, it tends to be people who migrated to California. So I'd just like to prepare you all for some offense that might come your way tonight if you're not actually from California. Um, but thankfully, I have tenure, so we're good. The, uh, the thesis, contra oh, and here it is right now for the New Yorkers here and New Jersey counts. Contrary to the typical New York-centered historiography, we'll get into that word in a moment, the American Jewish experience moves west to east. California Jews situated on the edge of the continent. Now that's a play actually on the Central Conference of American Rabbis um, theme for their conference a few years ago in San Francisco. I don't know if you got to attend that one in San Francisco. I, I gave the keynote address there. They told me that I had to title my speech, American Jewish Life on the Edge of the Continent because they thought coming from the east that that's California was like waiting for the earthquake to swallow everybody up and then I'd have to explain that in fact we're leading you and that's how it went. Um, that California Jews face the greatest threats to Jewish identity just as they innovate for the rest of the country. So this is a good news, bad news story, but you can decide if you think it's good news or bad news, maybe we'll get to that when we get to questions and answers. So um, we're gonna, I'm gonna tell you all about, so this is a book talk, by the way, that's officially what this is tonight. Here is the book, and uh, I'll be telling you more about it in a moment, and then afterwards, if you'd like, um, we're selling them and signing them, and all of the royalties are going back to the congregation for tzedakah, so, um, and this is, so I have four books, I have four books, only three are here because the other one sold out, but my wife is up north getting more copies of the book and spending time with friends. So there's the recent one on black power and this is the first one on Jewish liberalism, if those are any interest to folks. All right, 
Now, the honor code. Those there are some people here who are coming to their second talk with me and some coming to their 10th talk with me, which is impressive because I've only given nine talks so far. So the rule is, I only have four jokes, so when I go through them again, just pretend to be laughing, I will appreciate it. And uh, if I'm asking a question that you already know the answer to, you can't answer it, nor can you whisper it to a friend. That's the violation of the honor code. Um, I gave a lecture actually last night at UC Santa Barbara, and uh, so I'm fresh with their answers to these questions, and we'll begin with the easy question. And then it's the easy question because this one is not supposed to trick you. Um, if anyone want to raise your hand so we know where you're at and define history. That would be the easy one. Yes, please. please. What's your name? Phil. Hi, Phil. What's history? That's already an A-plus answer. Well done, because I was just going to say study of the past. Yes, that's absolutely right. Um, by the way, to encourage my students to participate in class when they give excellent A-plus answers or, or even better, ask really good questions, they get a prize. And uh, I want the prize to be I'll pay their tuition. But I, well, I did tell them when I get the first million dollar paycheck from SF State, I'm gonna do that because I know that I'll never have to pay the million dollars. So in the meantime, I'm gonna give them and you a genuine Jewish studies theme pencil. One moment, I'm gonna do Donahue right now and bring it out to you. And I just want all of you to know two things. First, my undergraduates don't use pencils anymore. They don't know what these are. So I appreciate in community audiences, people understand what this is. Number two, I'm gonna, <laughs> he just said, how do you turn it on? That is excellent. I'm gonna, if I'm gonna use that line in the future, if I can. And uh, what I'm gonna do to inspire you is just put the pencils right there and then you can kind of look at them and that will, that will encourage you to answer a question. All right, for those who haven't heard the answer already, here's a tougher question. The word is historiography. Any English majors here, former English majors? No, former? Yeah, but I can't. Oh yeah, because oh, you know it already, thank you. Because oh, oh, if you're, if you're, maybe you can get the etymology by examining the word. Rabbi? That is so outstanding. <laughs> Rabbinic training done well. How did you come up with that? Graph. Graph, he looked at graph and graph means? Right. Writing. writing, okay, hold on a second. I believe in spontaneity. I plan on it every day. <laughs> Rabbi, come on up here if you would. You see, right up, all the way up here. I have a presentation for you. You get a prize. So here's how it goes. Um, you know, the students, they like the pencil thing. Sometimes they roll their eyes at me because they think it's a little ridiculous in college to get pencils, but I go with it. Clearly, by the third or fourth week of the semester, they, they are tired of the pencils. So I actually have to have a level two prize. Erasers? It's a pen. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, erasers don't matter to them because they don't use pencils. But I do have erasers. They're level four prizes. Thank you for asking. Um, the highest is the level seven prize. 
it's often not awarded. You need a student in 15 weeks who can make it up to level seven. And uh, for the rabbi, we have a level seven prize. Oh, boy. So the level seven prize is a Professor Dollinger purple special pen here. It's purple because that's SS State's color. It's your favorite color? Oh, and we knew that when we ordered it. So, uh, so Rabbi, just to let you know, to make the pen work, you actually have to twist this thing here, and then the pen comes out, right. just so you know. But I, you need to... what is a pen? What is a pen? That's the, the next thing that we're never going to see. Um, I need you to do a demonstration. Believe it or not, there is a, a cap on the end of that pen. If you could pull it off, it's really hard to pull off. You have to pull it off. Pull it, pull it straight off. There you go. Almost. Ooh, oh, my yeah. gosh. It's a 16-gigabyte memory disk. I know what that is. Whoa. Wow, but wait, there's more, Rabbi. You see, this is more than just a fantastic prize. This is a metaphor of your professional career. Because as a rabbi in the modern period, and especially in the reform movement, your challenge is to navigate tradition, for which Judaism is based, with modernity, the world in which you live and the congregants that you serve. How do you do that? How do you do that? So straddle you worlds. straddle the two worlds and let's look at this pen. Rabbi, when you want to be ancient, you just take out the ink and write a letter and put it in an envelope with a stamp, something that students don't know anymore anymore. And if you want to be modern, you just flip this the other way. You put it in your computer and you are all digital. More than a pen, this is a metaphor for the rabbinate. Thank you very much for all you do. Historiography, well done, yes. Um, or as Rabbi Dr. Professor uh, Michael Signer of Blessed Memory, who actually taught at the Hebrew Union College um, before he went to Notre Dame, he says, why use a monosyllabic when a polysyllabic will do? Um, so in that spirit, historiography is a study of how historians have studied the past. And now I'll give an explanation for those that weren't caught up with where you were going. About every 20 years, history changes. Okay, history doesn't change, but the telling of history changes when a new generation of historians look at the same historical event and write a new book about it. For example, imagine yourself a white college student at the University of Mississippi in 1840. You get the textbook for your US history class published by the University of Mississippi Press. Your week's assignment is slavery, the chapter on slavery. What's it going to say? What's the textbook going to say about slavery? Someone raise your hand. Yes. And your name? Uh, Pam. Hi, Pam. Oh, yes. Thanks. The textbook's going to say how wonderful slavery is and how actually necessary to the economy of the South. Well done. Pencil worthy. It's going to say that, the, uh, the, the, that slavery is a positive good. That was a phrase of the 1840s. They, in fact, had seven distinct arguments defending slavery um, as a socially redemptive institution. Um, all right, so let's make it 1860. Let's put you at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Let's have the textbook from the UMass Boston Press. Let's open to their chapter on slavery. What's it going to say? Yeah. A terrible thing because Boston is the center of the abolitionist movement. Now imagine you don't know nothing from nothing, and you put those two textbooks side by side, and you read the chapters you don't even know you're reading about the same historical moment because different historians are going to look at it in different ways. This is what academic historians do. We do not write history. We write historiography. 
It is our job to read the literature on whatever topic we're going to pick. And basically, after we've read every book ever published on the topic, we lean back and we say, they're idiots. They have no idea what they're talking about. Because when I write my book, everybody will know the truth. In this case, about California Jews, because that's what we're talking about tonight. So, uh, of course, humility comes in. Because after your book's been out 10, 15, 20 years, a new generation of graduate students are going to come through. Someone's going to want to write a book on your field. They're going to read your book. And what are they going to say about you? What an idiot. They don't even know what they're doing. And then the cycle goes round and round. So, so, um, academic, so tonight is actually not a history of California Jews. It's a historiography. I'm going to give you a university-level approach to how we look at scholarship and, and what uh, Ava Khan, my co-editor, and I uh, wanted to do with the book. But first, my favorite, polysyllabic. Yes, filiopietistic. I'll give you a hint. It's from the Latin. <laughs> While you're thinking about it, I'll say, Rabbi, is there water? Or did someone get water anywhere? Oh, oh thank you. Thank you. Anyone on filiopietistic who didn't hear this in an earlier version? Hmm. All right. Literally, love of one's own brother. Love of one's own brother, um, which actually translates to ethnic self-congratulation, which tonight actually translates to, aren't the Jews great? And let me tell you, the Jews are great. They are just awesome. California Jews are the second best state in the union, Rabbi. There we go. That's how good they are because filiopietism is the propensity of a scholar in ethnic studies to write a book celebrating their ethnic group. So the first historiographic generation in Jewish studies are books that say, aren't the Jews great? And if you're in African-American history, it would be, aren't the blacks great? And if you're in Latino history or gay, lesbian history, American, it doesn't matter, women's studies, the first generation always celebrates and points out the incredible accomplishments of your group. If you've read any synagogue studies, if a member of the congregation writes this synagogue history, it's probably, sorry, filiopietistic. It's probably, our congregation is great. So after you have an entire generation of how great the Jews are in the historiography, a new generation of, of grad students are going to come in. What are they going to write in their historiography? Thank you. Yeah, I, I can they're going to say the Jews are terrible. Thank you. The second historiographic generation is the opposite of filiopietism. It says the Jews are terrible because they need to get published. They need to get a job and they need tenure. So you have to show that you have a better way of looking at the topic than anyone else. The third generation. Oh, they say stop bickering back and forth. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Fourth generation. Oh, you're asking all the wrong questions. It's really about transnational environmentalism. And then they go off, and the whole thing starts all over again, and then, and then they work. So um, filiopietistic um, love of one's own family. So now I offer you a challenge. It is a prize challenge, Rabbi, if you could be the judge of the challenge. Let's give them a week or even give them to the end of the month. I think I'm here till like the 28th. If you can, you, your challenge is to use the phrase filiopietistic, historiographic analysis in conversation. 
And when you do, just let the rabbi know or email me directly. I'll send you a prize. Now, oh yeah, you can say it from the bima, but here's the thing. You can't say, oh my gosh, I was a B'nai Tzedek. We had a great talk on filiopietistic historiographic analysis. That's too easy. It has to be a conversation for which the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis naturally occurs. And then tell us how you managed to do that, and you'll get a prize. All right. Are we, are we ready for the book? Uh, who is a New Yorker here? Or New Jersey? All right. Anyone from Brooklyn? Okay. With apologies. Actually, I'm learning Brooklyn now. I'm, le I'm learning like Park Slope. I'm supposed to say that when people say Brooklyn, because that's supposed to be hip. Is that like the fancy place where, where all the cool people like to go? The young people, yeah, that's not me, but I feel, all right. Here's the book. So by the way, this book, California Jews, it's published by Brandeis University Press, and uh, um, there's a series throughout the country. So I don't think they've done Jews of Ohio yet, but there's a possibility. Um, they, did, they, they do have a book called, called Jews of Brooklyn, and uh, it's an interesting story because um, I received a phone call from the editor, and she said, we're doing a book on California Jews, and we want you to write a chapter. And I spent a half an hour telling her why I would not write a chapter in a book called California Jews, because uh, local history is usually terrible. It's usually filiopietistic. It does not have, oh, thank you, didn't I work that in well? You know? um, and by the way, in my most latest book, I got the word in twice, just because so, it's my favorite word. And everyone who knows me knows I keep doing that little challenge. So when people who know me read the book and then they see I, I worked it in, I hope they'll get a laugh out of that. Um, my colleague at San Francisco State, he likes the word, so my students have a standing challenge. If they can ever get that word into a question in his class, I give them a prize, because he knows I sent them when that word comes out of their mouth. Uh, so, uh, so the editor, you know, so I said, local history is not historiographically significant. It tends to be self-congratulatory. It does not speak to national issues generally. And the only people who would have a need to read it are the people in that little region so they can feel all good about themselves. And that's not what academic historians do. We're looking in the historiography to imagine how we think about history, why it's important to think about history in, in whatever way you want. And you drive an argument. And if you're doing local history, you want the local history to speak to big important questions. You have to figure out what the big important questions are, but that's, well, after a half an hour of ranting like this with her, she asked me to be the editor of the book. <laughs> she said, that's, we, need, we need a book. We need a book that's going to do what you're going to do. And we've got the Jews of Brooklyn. We've got the New York one. And, uh, and as it turns out, California's Jewish history is so different than New York Jewish history. And by the way, I want to tell you about a lie. There's, if you anyone ever read any book in American Jewish history that had like on the title American Jewish history, have you ever seen those words? Because if they write American Jewish history on the cover of the book, they're not telling you the truth. Because when you read the book, they should just title it New York City Jewish history, because that's pretty much how it how it goes. And uh, and and if you're going to do a California history book then we need to reframe the whole way we look at what is Jewishness and what is Jewish history and what is American Jewish history through the lens of Californians as Californians in a way that will undermine, sorry, the Jews of Brooklyn. So that even though almost all American Jews went through New York and New York is the demographic center of American Jewish life, 
It does not need to be 95% of all the historical writing, and it doesn't need to inform the assumptions we make on what Jewishness is and what Jewish history is. If you really wanted to write an American Jewish history book, let's do one chapter on New York, let's do one on LA, let's do one on like St. Joe, Missouri, like one on the Deep South, right? Just mix it up a bit, because you're gonna find Jews in each of those types of locales are gonna be really different from one another in some ways, and probably similar in other, and then you've got to wrestle, not with which part of the country has more Jews, but how does history play out on Jews who live and grew up in different places? Because if each of you grew up in a different place than where you live now, you probably have understandings of, of what it is, and, and, as well as generations. So when we wrote this book, um, the editor told us this is a, a, a book written by professors, but intended for really smart lay readers like each of you, which means no footnotes. So that's really hard. And we had to recruit all of the professors to write the chapters and told them they're not allowed to write footnotes. And uh, I'm not gonna say anything bad about any of our contributors, but I'll just say we were successful in the no footnote rule with everyone but one. I'll just leave it there. Um, let's see, California, we did all that. Okay, so this is the first book on California Jews in a generation, actually in about 40 years. And that's really good because when Ava and I read, of course, all of the earlier books on, uh, on that, we, we were able to figure out a whole lot of things that needed to be told. So here's where we, here's where we began. Um, this, is, uh, this is actually a, uh, a gift that, uh, that I commissioned for my parents on my wedding day to thank them for my, my, new, my then new wife and I commissioned, which is the, the journey of, this is the journey of my family to America, but it really shows a nice sort of Eastern European migration over here. Do you see the laser beam I'm pointing? Isn't that cool? I just like to have this. It's a visual aid. And now it's tax deductible. Thank you. Uh, so most, um, most European immigrants you know, came across the Atlantic here into Ellis Island, right? And then they would have made the journey to California overland. Um, certainly if they're coming in the late 19th century, they were gonna do it on horseback. Once the Transcontinental Railroad is finished after the reconstruction period, they're able to take the train. Um, my family, as it turns out, happened to go to the Black Sea first, to Istanbul, Marseille in the south of France, and then they went all the way down here to Argentina because Baron de Hirsch was creating a new Palestine colony. Uh, in the late 19th century, some Zionists were committed to creating what would be the state of Israel in what was then Ottoman Palestine. But others said, you know, there could be a Jewish homeland you know, anywhere in the world. They thought about Uganda in 1903. That was a proposal. Uh, and there was also a proposal for Argentina. So my family went there. They didn't like it. So they kept coming north until ultimately uh, in 1890, they ended up uh, in San Francisco which uh, makes me a fifth-generation San Francisco Jew. Now, I, I only got like one or two of you looked at me like that was something impressive, and that's because you're all from Orange County. So I will share with you how it goes, you see. When I give, I have a talk just on San Francisco Jewish history, and when I give that talk, I walk up and I say, I am a fifth-generation native San Franciscan. And the audience, they go, ooh, right? Because they think that's impressive. They think I came in the gold rush, even though it was not in the gold rush. I just, Dollinger, blonde hair, blue eyes, are thinking German. Uh, I just let them go with that. Um, 
And, uh, and then I, I feel bad to tell them that uh, I'm a fifth generation native San Franciscan because I'm actually an Angelino. I was actually raised in Southern California up in Palos Verdes, you know, about a half an hour from here. That would be three hours in traffic. And uh, so I say fifth generation native San Franciscan, um, raised in the other, raised by my loving parents, otherwise loving parents in the suburbs of Los Angeles. And then they boo because up there they don't like people from Los Angeles because of the water apparently. And uh, so then, I, so then I said, return to redemption 17 years ago, back to San Francisco. So then they cheer. And then, because I know about baseball, I say, but you know what that means? That means that I was raised a Dodger fan. Right? Now they all really boo, because they don't like the Dodgers. And then, I, and then I say, but then they picked my favorite Dodger, Dusty Baker, to be the manager of the Giants, and now I'm a Giants fan. And then they cheer, and then I'm given permission to talk. So we go from there. All right, uh, I have a quiz for you, and the quiz is, who is this? If you can see it, I know it might be difficult to see depending on where you're sitting. And on the easy to hard question, that's a hard one. My great-great-grandmother, excellent, um, incorrect, correct, incorrect answer. All right, I'll give you a hint, but it's no longer pencil-worthy. She's the founder of Hadassah. Zold, good, yay, all right, Henrietta Zold. This is Henrietta Zold. In 1915, Henrietta Zold said that California would be a great training ground for the Zionist movement. She said, quote, California resembles it, meaning um, Ottoman Palestine. California resembles it so closely in climate, geological formation, and agricultural problems and advantages while surpassing it in prosperity and technical progress. Wouldn't that be great if um, Silicon Valley, you know, in the early 20th century, actually became like, they started kibbutzim there, you know, to get that, to get that going? Um, all right, who, who's that? Uh, not the Chief Justice, but you were in the right neighborhood, yeah? Louis Brandeis, well done. Grab a pencil after, cla after class, out of class, after lecture. Um, Louis Brandeis, the first Jewish judge on the Supreme Court, he was associate judge. Um, he referred to Israel, and by the way, he was a leader of the American Zionist movement, and he called Israel, quote, a miniature California. So we're getting, we're getting some respect. Uh, this is the book cover, and it may be a little difficult to see on the image. That's, that's the stained glass window of Congregation Sherith Israel in San Francisco. It is a picture depicting Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, delivering the Ten Commandments from Sinai. But if you look closely at the image, there's uh, something different about that. Anyone want to offer anything in that image that looks different than what you would imagine? That's my hint. There's something there. It's hard to see? I, yeah, yeah. It's a little, so here's, because you know the answer, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well done. Yes, Half Dome and El Capitan up there. Well done. That is pencil worthy. Yeah, hold, hold on. I, I, yeah. Now, according to this uh, story of Revelation, then, um, 
They must have smashed, you know, the tablet somewhere near Bridal Veil Falls and um, spent 40 years wandering around Fresno before they got up to uh, uh, California uh, and, and Buchanan Streets in San Francisco where the stained glass window still remains. So uh, if you want to understand the, the, the California Jewish version of the Yiddish word chutzpah, this is chutzpah. Uh, because not only is it at Sherath Israel, it's actually in the sanctuary itself. It's like, it's like that window right there in the sanctuary. So when you come on Yom Kippur to Davin Kol Nidre, you have moved Revelation to California. And if you have friends from the East that don't understand California Jews, just show them that picture and say all the rest is commentary. Go and learn it. So um, here is a bonus for you. This is a map um, of the California Jewish population. It's done by county. And the bonus is it's in color because the book has it in black and white. Why is it in beautiful color here when it's in black and white in the book? Because apparently it costs a lot of money to produce images in color for a book. So we were not able to get it in the book, but you are able to get it by being here tonight. Um, and here we have the San Francisco Bay Area back in that day was 210,000. And of course, here we're down in Los Angeles. And there is Orange County right there. And that number is probably pretty well outdated by now. I think it says 75,000, 70,000 in San Diego. Uh, uh, so this was done by uh, Ira Sheshkin, a University of Miami um, geographer, geography professor. And what he did is he compiled a variety of community studies. So the years will be different depending on the most recent year each of the communities paid for a study. I can tell you that the San Francisco Bay Area is from 2001, and the Los Angeles study is probably probably about 20 years old. I don't know if Orange County got counted in when the LA Federation paid for the community study, if that included Orange County, or if you had to do your own. Right, you're doing your own now, great. So, all right, there's your update. And uh, on the next printing of the book, we will add the new number. So, unless it's lower, then we won't add it. We'll just keep that there. That's, that's not lower, that's, that, that's correct. Um, all right, let's talk about the historiography of California Jews. If you read every book ever written about California Jews before this one, you would, uh, you would be amazed because there were no women in California. Okay, as it turns out, there were, were women, probably, probably about half the population. But when you read the book, you couldn't see any of them there because the earlier historiographic generations were not only filiopietistic, they were also misogynist and male-centered in the way that they understood who made history and what history was. So Ava and I decided, because uh, at that time, uh, the state of California had two Jewish women in the United States Senate. So we thought, um, let's do a chapter on California Jewish politics and let's write, have that chapter written in a gendered perspective so that folks can understand. So, most immediately, it's a story about Jewish women in California politics. In a bigger way, we're making an announcement to the country. A, if you can write a local history about anybody, make sure that it also includes gendered analyses because histor the historiography needs that. Number two, 
I don't think there's another state in the union where both United States senators are Jewish women. So maybe something's going on in California we can think about historically, or we can come up with some kind of argument to, to understand or explain that. And, and then this goes out you know, as, as a challenge to everyone. All right, so, so here's, another, uh, here's another quiz for you. Anyone know who this is? May West, uh, excellent incorrect answer. What's that? Kate Smith, another excellent incorrect answer. Sophie Tucker, a third excellent incorrect answer. No one's going to get this one. It's okay. I'm going to give you the easy one. I'll give, you, I'll, I'll give you the easy one. There is a woman seated at the table who's a little bit smaller. She's a little bit easier to recognize in the background, if anyone can see that one. That's Eleanor Roosevelt, seated. You see that? Do you see her? Uh, hold on. I'll use my laser pointer. There she is. That is somebody named Florence Prague Khan. Anyone? Florence Prague Khan? Uh, what's that? Uh, no, close. Um, it was actually Julius Khan's wife. Anyone on Julius Khan? I know. Florence Prague Khan was the first Jewish woman in the United States Congress. Most people think it was like Bella Abzug and coming in the 70s. So California not only created two Jewish senators at the same time, California created the first Jewish woman in Congress. And what happened was her husband was Julius Kahn, and Julius Kahn died in office. And as is often the case, um, if a man wins political election and dies in office, they bring the wife in to finish the term of the husband as, a, as respect, except that uh, Florence ran for re-election from the 20s into the 30s, over and over and over again, and uh, continued winning on her own. So now, historiographically speaking, we challenged American Jewish history and women's history and political history, scholars in all those fields, to say, why is it that California came up with the first Jewish woman in Congress and not New York? Now, now I'm just starting to brag, but okay, it's filiopietistic, but who cares? Um, Florence Prague Kahn was voted out of office in 1936. A pencil if anyone knows why. You have to raise your hand to answer. Why was she voted out in 36? Do you, do you think you have an idea? She was considered a communist? You're, you were actually on the right track. Yeah? The rise of Nazism in the U.S. also on the right track. Someone else called out something without raising their hand. What did you say? What's that? She was a Republican. Yes, that's the right answer. Oh, oh okay, we're in Orange County. Come on, folks. So, so here is our equal opportunity political moment. Florence Procon was a Republican, and she was voted out in 1936 as FDR's New Deal swept the country. Now, in 1932, he won in a landslide. And what he didn't win in 1932, by 1936, he just cleaned up. Because he basically said to the governors and all the local officials, when he's giving out like a gazillion dollars of federal aid, if you have, a, if you have Democrats in power in your state, I'll give you more money. If you have Republicans in power, oh, we'll just have to see. And Republicans got thrown out of offices at every level across the country through the 1930s as FDR's New Deal coalition uh, strengthened itself. So this means that not only were 
was California a place for women in politics at the national level, at least in the Bay Area, San Francisco Jews were predominantly Republican. And they were Republican through the 1930s uh, for a variety of reasons, which you know, we can get into later if you have for Q&A, for Q because uh, we're gonna have question and answers a little bit later. But I love historiographically that we found a, an author who could put this into the book because now we're going against the whole idea that all Jews are Democrats. And certainly 1932, 82% of American Jews voted for FDR. By 1944, 90% of American Jews voted for FDR. But something's going on in California and something's going on. San Francisco is supposed to be the most liberal progressive place and the Jews are supposed to be the most liberal progressive people. And now we have a Jewish woman, first member of Congress, and she's a Republican. That's awesome for, a, for an academic historian, right? To be faced with that, because then what we have to do is sit and think about that for a long time. And then in the book, in the chapter, we try to come up with the argument. We try to figure out how it is we can piece together what doesn't look like it makes sense. This is an ad for Levi Strauss. Anyone want to offer commentary on what might be different about that ad? It's in Spanish. Thank you. So we could see, because, uh, well... I have to, I'm gonna now condemn myself because my, my field is actually black Jewish relations. That's what I do most of my scholarship on. And most people who talk about race relations or intergroup relations or ethnic conflicts between groups, it's always a black-white dichotomy. Like without even thinking all the books are about blacks and it can be Irish or Italians or Jews and African-Americans. But if you're from Los Angeles and you look at the story of LA Jews and intergroup relationships, it's not a black-white history. It's a Latino-Jewish history. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a chapter on Latino-Jewish relations in Southern California? Okay, so we did. Steve Winmuller, who now retired from the Hebrew Union College, wrote that chapter. And, uh, and what that means historiographically, why that would be a national question in a local book is, if Professor Winmuller is gonna find that when Jews are engaging with Latinos in Los Angeles, it may not be the same way that whites interact with blacks in New York City, which is where most of the studies emanate. So that one little chapter in this book, if it turns out to be different than like 150 books on race relations in New York City, we're throwing down the challenge to everyone who wrote all those books and all the grad students to say, guess what? Maybe you didn't write about race relations. Maybe you just wrote about New York. And maybe when you read LA and you read about Latinos instead of African-Americans, we're gonna get more subtlety and complexity. And with that challenge, scholars across the country dealing with an issue of race and intergroup relations are gonna to have to force themselves to think about it in new ways. Yes. Later on, oh yes, thank you. So we have a Republican sitting with Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay, so I'll give you the quick answer here. The Republican Party of the early 20th century was the Progressive Party, and the Democratic Party was not so progressive. It flipped in the late 20s and early 30s. Uh, by 36, pretty much, it had already had, had that flip, but party loyalties prevailed. So in terms of Florence Prague Kahn's political procli proclivities, it was much closer to Eleanor Roosevelt than their party status would have had. Great question, and all right, so now, I just resolved the tension. I wanted you to walk out full of conflict and tension for tonight. Uh, so, okay, some bad news. Uh, it used to be called internment. 
Uh, scholars now don't call it internment. This is when United States citizens of Japanese descent were deprived of their constitutional rights and property during World War II because internment was used by those who did it in order to not say what they really did, which was incarceration. So I'm doing my best now to use the word incarceration instead of internment. I was raised calling it internment, so sometimes I just make a mistake and I just go back to that. Um, wow. Incarceration was pretty much a California thing in World War II, state of Washington and Oregon as well, but it was a West Coast thing. San Francisco was really big in it. LA was big in it. And um, if we're going to have a chapter on Latino-Jewish relations in LA, why don't we also do a chapter on Japanese-American, Jewish-American relationships in World War II? And let's see if race relations in war in LA play out differently when we look at incarceration. So do you see how that's a new way of approaching it? It's historiographically different. It challenges all of the other scholars. And it also does a few other things. Nobody has written about the Jewish views towards the incarceration of US citizens of Japanese descent for a couple reasons. One, it happened in World War II, and most of the scholars were doing Holocaust studies. Um, I decided because, by the way, Holocaust studies is the most historiographically rich field in all of Jewish studies, which is a fancy way of saying more academic pages have been published about the Holocaust than any other subject in Jewish studies. So if you're in grad school and you're trying to be historiographically significant and saying everyone who wrote before you is an idiot, you're not going to do it in Holocaust studies because there's just like too much stuff there. So I decided to be tactical. I said, okay, if all the scholars are studying the Holocaust, what are they missing? What aren't they writing about in World War II? And then I got to incarceration of US citizens of Japanese descent and discovered that no one had published anything. So that was in the first book. So then when we got to California Jews, we said, for sure, we're going to bring Ellen Eisenberg, who's uh, teaching up in Sa Salem College in Oregon, and to, to write for us a chapter. Um, and, and she focused more on Oregon because, um, well, actually, she's from Oregon. She's, I'm sorry, she focused this on California. She subsequently wrote a book on incarceration in Oregon, which is a great book um, if you're interested. Uh, it's a taboo subject. It's taboo to talk about what was Jewish and rabbinic complicity in the denial of constitutional rights to these uh, people in a time of war. And uh, I was at this, this Jewish studies conference. Turned out three of us were writing on incarceration I was writing on it for my dissertation, and Ellen was writing on it. And then a scholar from Trinity College in Hartford, Cheryl Greenberg, was writing on it when she was talking about uh, actually black-Jewish relations, so she brought this to compare. And at that time, you know, like at, at academic conferences, you stare at people's name tags to see what book they write. And then when it dawns on you, you wrote that book, you get all excited, and then you start a conversation in the elevator about their book. And then they're flattered because you read their book. And the three of us met and saw our name tags and realized we were all in our mid-30s. We were all writing on the same topic from different angles. And we were the first American Jewish scholars to ever approach the topic. So we thought the mere selection of that topic was historiographically significant, either because everyone was in Holocaust studies or nobody wanted to look at the uncomfortable truth of the fact that, um, for the most part, um, Jews didn't do anything. And then Ellen uh, figured it out, Ellen Eisenberg up north. She found out that there was the only people, the only Jewish leaders to oppose incarceration 
were reform rabbis in San Francisco who were anti-Zionist. And she made a link between being a Jewish anti-Zionist and opposing incarceration. And like, how, how does that work? And then she explained, this Jewish anti-Zionism is from the political right. It's not from the political left. Now when you say anti-Zionist, you normally think about the college campus stuff, which is leftist. If you were a 19th century, early 20th, mid-20th century San Francisco reform movement, classical reform movement rabbi, America is a wonderful place. It's a welcoming place. Jews do really well in America. You can't imagine leaving California for what was then the malarial-infested swamps of Palestine. Now, this definition of Zionism said a Zionist lives in Israel, and if you're here in Orange County, sorry, you're not, not a Zionist, right? And uh, if they loved America so much that they never thought that they needed to go and create an Israel, what kind of America denies the basic rights to any minority group? So they fought on behalf of US citizens of Japanese descent because they did not want their beloved America to be doing such an unconstitutional thing. Which, when you look at it on the surface, makes the parallel between Jewish anti-Zionism and the only ones who made the right social justice call in World War II. So we found, we found that fascinating in and of itself and also on a larger scale. This is Congregation Emmanuel in San Francisco. Um, this was 1854, and I only put this here because this is where all the anti-Zionist uh, rabbis came, came from. All right. Before I show you the, picture, the next picture, I'll have to set it up. I'm just going to say that Brandeis University Press, at the time the book was published, was um, located in northern New England, in New Hampshire. So when we were brainstorming with the editors in New Hampshire on what we wanted in the book, our editor said, do a chapter on surfing. Thank you for laughing. I'm like, oh, please, really? Oh, she, my editor, she said, uh, Jewish surfing, that would be fantastic. You should do one on Jewish. And I said, are you just having fun with Californians' expense? By the way, in an earlier version of this talk, somebody told me like the surfing champion of the 1950s happened to be Jewish, so we probably could, done, could have done a, a chapter on Jewish surfing. Yeah, but I... I, I thought that that was not historiographically significant, and I thought we were kind of selling our California soul out to do that, but we did decide instead to talk about the ocean. What does it mean that California borders the Pacific Ocean for hundreds and hundreds of miles? To what extent does California's geographic, environmental, physical proximity to water influence history. Okay, now I'm giving you, this is like, this is the advanced stuff. In a university level history, there's something called environmental history. So let me give you two examples of environmental history. What would have happened in history if the soil in the deep south ended up in New England and the rocky soil of New England ended up in the deep south? We'd have slavery in the north instead of the south. Which means all of the moral arguments about how immoral the white Southerners were maybe doesn't mean so much because the white Northerners would have, would have been equally immoral if just the dirt was different. So maybe it's not about people. 
And maybe it's not morality. And maybe it's not about slavery and doing the right thing for our fellow human beings. Maybe history is determined by dirt. Ooh, that's pretty provocative, right? The scholar who came up with the dirt thesis got a job and got tenure. Because historiographically speaking, it undermined every book ever written in history and says you can't study humans' behavior without studying the environment in which it's in. One of my grad student classmates, he is a labor historian, and he wrote on labor strikes in Minnesota. And his career thesis, did it snow during the strike? Turns out, if the weather was bad in Minnesota, the strikes weren't so good. If the weather was better in Minnesota, they had a greater chance, which meant they really didn't strike in the winter. They waited for the spring to strike. So if you want to understand labor history in cold climates, it's not about labor history. It's about cold climates. So playing on environmental history, we thought we should introduce this historiographic field in our book, and we should do something with water. So uh, we have a chapter. This is in Venice. And there is like a synagogue on the beach in Venice. And, uh, and they did Tashlich, right, in the high holidays by going into the ocean and casting away the sins. And uh, I live in San Francisco, so we do that too. You know, we do, do that as well. Right, right, because we just take it for granted because we're California Jews. And if you lived in Kansas, you don't even know what you're missing. Uh, you from Kansas? Oh. The birds, I understand. <laughs> so you need, I'm saying you need permission from, from the government authorities because the bread is actually not good for, for the wildlife. Uh, so, we, so we have a chapter now which is trying to push the historiography to consider what water as a religious Jewish thing can do. Um, and also geography. Let's talk about the geography of California, specifically the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. So, oh, we decided to have another chutzpahdik moment because it turns out there are many Israelis now living in um, Southern California. So we thought, hmm, interesting. Israelis are leaving the promised land for the new promised land. Maybe California Jewish life is better than Israeli Jewish life. And uh, there was a professor at Tel Aviv University who wrote a book about Israeli kibbutzniks who moved to Southern California and the life. So we said, could you give us one, it's like a one chapter overview of your book. So just for fun, we called that chapter Kibbutz San Fernando. And when you read the introduction of a book, what it has is sort of like one paragraph on each chapter. It's like the Reader's Digest overview. So as an editor, like, I have to write that up. And so I, read, I wrote that particular chapter. You always send it to the author so they can you know, read it and check it. And the Israeli professor wrote it back to me and said, uh, you've, you've totally messed up my thesis. In fact, you didn't get my thesis at all. In fact, the paragraph you wrote is the opposite of what I wrote in the chapter. That is humiliating for me to have read the chapter and not had the thesis. So mortified, I reread the chapter and reread my paragraph. And I was spot on. So I pushed back and I said, I'm right. Please tell me 
where, where you think I'm wrong. And she said, you said that the Israelis have moved from Israel to L.A. They're happy and they're not coming home. I wrote, they moved to L.A., they're unhappy, and they will be returning home. And I went, oh, now we have the difference between a L.A. Jew and an Israeli Jew, because I read these Israelis as they're not going back to Israel, they're in, they're in L.A., they're happy, and she, of course, is reading them as they're going back, but since she was the author, we did change it to reflect what she thought her thesis was, so you could read the chapter and decide for yourselves if they're staying or if they're going. Um, there's another approach to historiography, uh, it's aesthetics, it's called material culture, it's a fancy phrase, and rather than study people, these scholars study things, and buildings and architecture is a field, is a subfield of, of history, so we actually have um, uh, David Kaufman um, did a whole chapter on synagogue architecture in California. And wouldn't it be interesting to compare and contrast the way in which synagogues are constructed in this state from the way synagogues might be constructed in other states to see ways in which in the material building of Jewish space, California kind of seeps in. Uh, this is a ketubah, a traditional Jewish wedding contract. In the medieval period, uh, ketubot, that's the plural for ketubah, for wedding contract, was an illuminated manuscript, a beautiful piece of art. It was just gorgeous. And, and if you go to museums, you can see some of these. And then over the centuries, it got reduced to an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that you folded in thirds and put in your safety deposit box after your wedding. And for a generation. But in the 60s, when the hippies and the counterculture picked up, um, they rediscovered the illuminated manuscript ketubah and ketubah artists began springing up around the country, creating personalized ketubot for couples when they're getting married. And, uh, and this is a ketubah by Robbie Saslow, who lives up in Van Nuys, and, uh, and he has done many ketubot. And, and we thought, well, this is, first of all, it's art. We like art, so we're going to do like a chapter on art and Jewish art. And if you're going to get married and you're California Jew, what's your ketubah going to look like? And how will California Jewish couples represent their Judaism through their marriage? We thought that would be fun. And um, this is the ketubah of uh, Ruben Arquilovich and Vivian Brawley. Ruben is a director of Camp Newman. And, uh, and we liked his because they met at summer camp. So they've got the little summer camp thing where they met. And, and they both love nature. Okay, because it's a podcast. And maybe Ruben and Vivian will listen. Ruben loves nature. Vivian, not so much. But Ruben got lots of nature here. And so this ketubah represents California integrated into what Jewish is in a religious way. And, and the reason we didn't get the color picture of the Florida count is we got a whole center spread with, with like a, a dozen different color ketubots. So that's why we couldn't fight back. Okay, here is my favorite ketubah. It's Dodger Stadium in a ketubah. This is from Sari, who teaches, who lives here in Orange County. She teaches at the, or works at the JCC. And, uh, and, and with, with her permission, um, here is her ketubah. And I want to point out a few things first. Before a book goes to print, they send you like the final, like what it looks like, and you have to approve it. And this thing was a square. It was 45 degrees off. Right. And I called them up. I said, you, you got to turn that 40, you got to make that a diamond. 
And they said, can't make it a diamond, won't fit on the page. I said, you've got to shrink it so it'll fit. She said, just make it a square. I said, I don't think you understand what that is. That's a baseball diamond. You can't have a baseball diamond unless it's actually a diamond. So, so here is the diamond. And um, this is Jerusalem, right? Which to me makes the infield fly rule have far more implications <laughs> if you're uh, you know, running through the Kotel through the Western Wall in order to see it. And if you look around here, then the couple has uh, taken the images and discussed them with, with Robbie the artist that they wanted to put. And I think the images they select are perhaps California-centered, perhaps they're generation-centered. And I think it's important that right here is the Israeli flag. So they're choosing to represent Zionism on their flag, on their ketubah. And next to it is the yellow star from the Holocaust. So in terms of how California Jews are constructing their memory and wishing to create what we hope will be the document for their entire lives, um, they're put in the juxtaposition of the Holocaust and and the state of Israel, and the Torah is here. And, uh, and then we have the score up there. And Sari is winning, okay? So I've had many a question of what is the significance of the score of the game and the numbers? So I called Sari to ask her, and she said there's no significance. It's just random. But I will tell you, if you believe in the Kabbalah, in Jewish mysticism, and the importance of Hebrew numerology, you will know there are no accidents. And if you studied it enough, perhaps you can find some hidden meaning in that particular um, ketubah. Um, this is uh, Valley Beth Shalom up in Encino, and this is the Lepati Chapel. And, uh, and this is put here, not only because right there is where I signed my ketubah and got married, okay, but the artists who did all of those windows are David and Michelle Plachta Zweibach, who used to be the stained glass artists at Camp Swig, which is now Camp Newman. And, uh, and we did a, a, a chapter on the Plachta Zweibachs because they were raised, uh, each of them were raised here in L.A. in the, in the, in the 60s, and they became hippies, uh, total and complete hippies, to the point that they moved like three hours north of San Francisco and bought 10 acres of land in Willits, California, like 40 minutes off the main road on the dirt road, and literally with their own hands built a house and lived in the house and had a daughter and raised the daughter. And they, they were the classic California Jewish hippies. And they were stained glass artists. So what they did with their stained glass is they did installations in Willets and they did the post office and the restaurant. And then they went to Camp Swig and sort of re-rediscovered their Jewishness. And they changed to being Jewish stained glass artists. And then they were doing synagogue installations like this. The synagogue installations they did across the country became so famous that churches heard about them. And churches asked them to do Christian religious stained glass. So then they started to do that. And I thought, what a great story of California Jewish life as expressed through their career in art, from secular to Jewish to Christian. And it goes all the way around um, in that circle. Political history. Political history is, um, all right, I'll be cynical, white dead man's history. Because when you read political history, that's what you're reading. Stories of dead white men. So in the 1960s, when a new generation of historians wanted to write about ordinary people, women, laborers, immigrants, non-whites, they called themselves social historians. 
Social historians thought that the story of ordinary people was just as important as elected officials. And by looking through the lens and the historiography of social history, they were able to capture a whole lot of stories. Now, I joked with you um, that there were no men in California because of the earlier versions. That's because that was all a political history approach. But now that we have the, uh, the social history approach, we wanted to make sure we reflected that. So what you see there is the handwritten diary entry of my great-grandmother, Sarah Clara Rice Dollinger. She's the one you saw in the first picture. On April the 17th, 1906, which was the day of the great earthquake and fire in San Francisco. On the 17th of April, about four months after we were married, and that was the picture you saw, their wedding picture, my husband came home from work and after supper worked on my princess suit he was making me for picnics this summer. We were up until about 11 when we went to bed. About four o'clock the next morning, I woke up and kissed my husband good morning. Just 16 minutes after five, the house began to shake and I thought we would soon pass as the others had. We'd had many, many amount of them, meaning earthquakes, all winter. This one continued, however, and got worse each second until the house fairly rocked from side to side. I jumped to the floor, intending to run for the door, but my husband held me back. We both sat on the bed, terror-stricken at the sound of falling plaster, crockery, and the stove, and dozens of other things. I thought it was the end of the world, and all I could say was, my God, my God. My husband and I will certainly not forget that experience as long as we live. Every minute I thought we would be buried under the ruins of our home. One side of the wall in our bedroom was hanging, ready to fall. Over the mantel, all the plaster was lying in a heap together with pictures in our clock. In the kitchen, the stove and falling had covered everything with soot. As soon as the shock had subsided, we ran for the door, which my husband had to take off its hinges. I came back, got my engagement ring, my gold watch, our marriage license and bank, uh, bank book, pulled a skirt and jacket over my nightdress, and we hurried across the street. The most, per most basic question, what is history? What is the nature and purpose of history? You're going to write a history book. Who do you write about? Social historians said, this, this is what we should be writing about. We should be writing about those kinds of moments as told by ordinary people, because that's what communicates realness in it. Um, just as an aside, uh, the gold watch... Um, went to my great uncle's side of the family because you know how these things go. Somebody gets them and somebody doesn't. Um, but I just love the story and my great uncle had shown me, shown me the watch, which, which was so, so what I did um, when I got married is I went and bought a similar gold watch and had it engraved uh, to my wife. So now there are two gold watches in, uh, in the family. It was actually a well, pocket watch is what those were. And, uh, and that will go down for the generations. Um, similarly, oh, actually... I'll do this one first. Uh, not to reveal myself too much, but uh, it turns out that uh, my great-great-grandfather, Albert, um, the one whose picture you saw, um, went to uh, a football game in the uh, late 1890s. It turned out to be the game between the University of California and Stanford. It turned out to be one of the very first big games, as they're called. Now, down here, it's SCUCLA, and up north, it's Cal Stanford. So he and some of his immig Jewish immigrant buddies created their own journal where they hand-wrote articles and tied it together to pretend like it's a journal. And this is a page 
with a play-by-play of the big game of, I think, 1898 or so. And on the left-hand side, it's hard to see, but he's writing the lyrics of the Cal fight song and the Stanford fight song. So this, we believe, is one of the earliest personal uh, collections from the big game. And um, there was a few years ago the 100th anniversary of, of the big game. And on the 100th anniversary, of course, both universities were on their campuses, you know, doing commemorations. I knew I had a really good historical document that I could put on loan at one of the two universities. So not to give myself away, but uh, go Bears, mine ended up in Berkeley. So <laughs> yeah, there we go. Well, see, my dad went to Stanford. So, so it's, it's an, it's an inter-family you know, rivalry be, between them. And then finally, we talked a little bit earlier about name changes and that the Ellis Island Guards never actually changed names. And in this case, uh, it's true because Albert, uh, who used to be Avraham before he became Albert, changed his name. And he actually wrote in his journal about how it is the kids decided to change their names. And through a diary entry talking about name changes in social history in California, all of it gets wound up in one historical document. He writes, just about this time, an epidemic of name changing broke out among the boys in our neighborhood. One of the boys' names was Yankala. We called him Jake or Jakey, which he didn't mind too much, but his mother would always come out of the house calling at the top of her voice, Yankala, which would humiliate him very much. Most of us had similar names, similar troubles, not only with our parents calling us by our Yiddish names, but other people in the neighborhood making fun of us. So a group of about 10 of us boys got together and agreed that the only solution to the problem was not to fight them as we had been doing, but to Americanize our name, thereby establishing our American rights. We were sitting on the front steps of Yonkala's house, so it was only natural for us to help him choose another name. One of the boys came up with a bright idea. Didn't the Swedes or Norwegians pronounce their J's as Y? Why not change Yankala to John Kella? Wait a minute, one of the boys said, taking a piece of paper, wrote in large letters, John Kelly. How does that look and sound? Poor Yankala was so overcome, he was almost in tears. He rushed in the house, calling for his mother, and explained to her that all she had to do when calling his name was to say, John Kelly. She tried to repeat it as he dictated, and after the third or fourth try, a smile broke out on her face, and she said, John Kelly, that's a good Yiddish-American-Irisher name, my own Johnnycle, and henceforth, he was known to us as John Kelly. Some of the fellows had parents, had parental trouble about their new names and had to drop them. I did not have that kind of trouble for the simple reason that I did not tell my parents. And then what he does is he decides he needs to have a signature, uh, a real Americanized signature. So it's hard to see here, but we have it in the book. At the bottom, he's writing different versions of Albert Jerome Dollinger in very fancy cursive because he thinks if you have nice American cursive, you're a good American citizen. Thank you very much. Questions, yes. Oh, hold on one moment. I think we have a, do you have a technical? Here we go. The microphone.
Oh, the mic. Oh, Rabbi has the mic. Okay. So since this is on a podcast, which you can listen to and send to your friends, we're going to send a microphone to you so you will be heard on the podcast. I want to just go back for a moment to... There it is. It looks like it's on. I just wanted to go back to your comment about what I think you described as Jew, uh, California Jews' complicity during the incarceration of the Japanese during yeah. um, World War II. And I'm wondering whether or not it is more a reflection of what you've referred to in some of your earlier lectures as to Jewish assimilation, that they were Americans and they were responding just like the Southern Jews responded to some of the issues in the South where they behaved just like their white Christian counterparts and not as Jewish you know, civil rights pioneers. Yeah. The ones here in California were doing likewise. They were behaving as Americans uh, who had assimilated and who had the same concerns we can look back and judge yeah. now. Not, yeah, not only will I agree with you, I'll double down and say you didn't even go far enough, which is how this goes. Yeah, no, thank you. That's, that's just because we engage in hopeless reductionism. So uh, my field is um, American Jewish history, and this book was on California Jews. So that's all I looked at. Uh, I do teach in the incarceration to undergraduates both in the U.S. History Survey, which is 100 students you know, ever from everywhere, and the American Jewish History course in particular. The story of the incarceration is not a Jewish story. Uh, I make it a Jewish story because that's my field. Um, the Republican Party supported incarceration. The Democratic Party supported incarceration. The ACLU supported incarceration. The Jews supported incarceration. The Christians supported incarceration. The only national figure that didn't support incarceration was Norman Thomas, the failed nine-time socialist candidate for president of the United States. The real issue here is democracy and war. What happens to the rights of minorities when a nation mobilizes for war, and in this case with war against Japan and racism in America and U.S. citizens of Japanese descent? So I think, for me, I'm most troubled by the ACLU because the ACLU like never flips on that kind of stuff, and they did there. Um, U.S. citizens of Japanese descent largely did not protest, not because they agreed, but because they understood that the best way they could survive was to write in the Japanese newspapers for all of the Japanese descended Americans to go ahead and go into the incarceration camps. Um, so all that understood that it's not a Jewish issue, now we can reflect it back to the Jews and say, okay, because my field is Jews and social justice, if indeed Jews are going to argue that social justice is paramount to what it means to be an American Jew, that's going to be the, the, the moment of the test to see where it breaks, and, and it's going to break because when you have a nation at war, uh, and, and, you, and social justice will be perceived as compromising the war effort, you tend not to do it. Yeah. Oh, hold on, let's wait for the mic. And... Is part of that because incarceration was sp spoke yeah. okay. was spoken about as a way of protecting Japanese Americans? What was what? So that was true that it was spoken that way. But what would be the agency of that comment? Like that people supported it because they felt that, that it was being protected. In okay. Some measure. Thank you. So um, sociologists have a word which is code, and code means 
you say a word or a special word, and on the surface, it appears to mean one thing, but if you really look at the word, it actually means something else. So law and order is a famous one from the 1960s. Law and order meant stronger police force because there was a concern about crime. Really what law and order was, was whites trying to stop black activism. And they used law and order sort of, you know, not to say that. So the notion that um, U.S. citizens were denied their constitutional rights in an effort to protect them would be code for anti-Asian racism. So it is absolutely true that that was said, and it was absolutely true that that argument was made, um, and it was a veneer, and if you sort of just dig down a little bit pretty quickly, we see, we see what's underneath that. And typically that's how things get constructed, because folks don't usually want to use the words of what's actually happening, so they'll find another. Um, All right, so the question is, so let me expand, the, expand that, and we'll say it here for the, for the podcast. Uh, do people who believe the code know its code, or do they honestly just believe it at face value? Well, it's possible that you don't know its code, but I would argue when somebody falls into the code, they're actually falling into whatever the trap that the code represents. Because for somebody to say that it's okay to incarcerate U.S. citizens and deny them their property because it's better for them, and they can, they can honestly believe that, and I will say that they honestly don't get it, right? Once, if they are capable of believing that, then they have already failed the social justice test. Yeah. Uh, hold on. Yeah, come over here. Oh, wait, hold on. We need the microphone. Hold, hold on. We need, we need the mic. Yeah. Did you say something about protecting the Japanese property? They never got their property back. Oh, right. That was my point, right? My point was that the property that they were, that they were, so what happened was they'd, they'd have to sell the property at pennies on the dollar. Now, I will just say in fairness to the Jews for a moment, because in the research I was able to find that there were individual cases of Jews, mostly in Boyle Heights, which was a Jewish and Japanese community in East L.A., where the, the, the U.S. citizen of Japanese descent would sell their house to their Jewish neighbor for a dollar, and then the Jewish neighbor would hold it, and then when the war ended, give it back for the dollar. So there were individual cases of that kind of protection. Um, but but the, the larger story is actually the removal of property rights. That's correct. Yeah. Um, in the Southwest, they have uh, that they discovered communities of Murano Jews that were practicing their their hidden Jewishness in the Southwest. Was there anything like this in California where these communities were discovered? Yeah, we, I, I haven't seen any evidence of California Jews and that kind of thing. And you've just made the case for the New Mexico Jews book, chapter one. <laughs> I was wondering how many uh, direct immigrants came to California versus the, the number of people, immigrants into California from, you know, second and third and later generations. Oh, right. So, yeah, thank you. So um, almost all Jews to California stopped somewhere else on their way in. There was not that much direct. My family was actually an anomaly or the exception that defined the rule. In most cases, um, I'll, give the, I'll give you the two examples. Um, in the 1840s, 100,000 Central European Jews came mostly to New York City, 
as a consequence of both uh, political upheaval in Central Europe and economic issues and economic opportunities. So when you're showing up in New York City in 1849, 1850, 1851, and you're getting word of the gold rush and business opportunities, the first big wave went from New York to California, oftentimes with some members of the family, like a brother would be in New York, and then another brother would come out, and then they would have the relationship across the Atlantic. And then the LA Jewish community, for the most part, is gonna begin in the late 19th century, Hollywood, of course, in the early 20th century, but most of the migration's not gonna come till after World War II, and much of it was uh, US military, Jewish military people stationed out here during the war, and realized, oh my God, why should I go back to New York? Right, over here. You're getting your steps. <laughs> I'm a little bit surprised that you haven't directly addressed the anti-Semitic experience in California versus the rest of the country. Was there a difference? Were there uh, CCNRs where Jews couldn't live in certain areas? I know there were clubs that Jews couldn't join, but were, did you have the same kind of uh, keep Jews out that you had in the Midwest and in, in other areas? Yeah, that's a, it's an excellent question. We do not have a chapter on anti-Semitism uh, in California. Uh, and now I'm thinking, why didn't we do that, right? Because that's a, that's a basic theme in American Jewish history. Um, certainly, the, the uh, so, so I have sort of two answers. Yes, there was anti-Semitism in California, as there was in the rest of the country. Um, subset, San Francisco, relatively little, even during the 20s and 30s, largely because um, Jews... Uh, from 1850 grew right into the center of the power structure of San Francisco and rose uh, and through the history even to today. Um, Jews are very successful in business and in social life and have integrated themselves into the political world. And San Francisco is, all right, there's two things. San Francisco is a polyglot. It's got lots of different people, but really it has Chinese and Japanese and anti-Asian racism in San Francisco has been horrendous. And Jews have benefit from the fact that they, that they are white. And most of the animus of the Bay Area um, went against first Chinese and later Japanese. Los Angeles um, uh, has Hollywood and the, 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 the founders of the motion picture industry, most of whom were Jewish, even though few of them actually actively identified as Jews, created an incredible phenomenon where Christian America, understanding of themselves as Americans, was created by Jews in LA. And the Jews in LA, by the way, did all they could to be as assimilated as possible. Wilshire Boulevard Temple it was also like a highly assimilated place. So um, the sociological standard of anti-Semitism would be, did anti-Semitism, was it so severe that it impacted Jews as a group? And from time to time it did in US history and from time to time in California, but we found historiographically speaking, California Jews didn't get it like New York or New Jersey because those places were packed in with Jews as a minority, out of power, with lots of other groups around and it, and it was far more complicated. But I'm gonna think more about that. There was an idea that I got while watching George Takai's story about living in one of the camps and growing up that way. And it came out in the play that we recently saw. And that is that anyone who was on the East Coast who was a member of the German Bund could not be instantly identified as that when the US went to war. However, yeah. being Japanese out on the West Coast, 
Your appearance made you immediately obvious that you were a member of one of the enemy powers. Right. And what was suggested in the play was that perhaps uh, this was a way for people who couldn't physically, actively participate in the war overseas could do something internally here in the U.S. against one of the enemy powers. What's your view of that? Well, yes, it's true. It's called racism, right? And if somebody is, is, is Chinese or Japanese in appearance, so let's just take Japanese now for, for World War II, then they were instantly thought to have dual loyalty. They were instantly thought to be a fifth column. That's uh, what General DeWitt, who is the one who was behind all of that, did. And that's exactly what they did and why they did it. Um, which is to say a German, we'll take the Bundes, we'll just say a German-American who is, let's say, a third or fourth generation American is not going to get that because they can blend in because they enjoy the, the privilege of whiteness. And there's nothing to say that they would be any more or less a Nazi than they would be or not be a Nazi, and maybe you'd have to go figure it out because you'd want to figure it out with them. Um, but the Japanese citizens, United States citizens of Japanese descent did not enjoy the privilege of the assumption of innocence they had the assumption of guilt and the assumption, and then the, and then the assumption followed um, with, with basically no trial, no jury, but the executioner. Um, so because I'm in Orange County, I want to share a story, and then I'll just check with the rabbi on how much more time you want because we're over, but I'll stay till midnight, but I just want to respect people's time. Here's how I explain it to my undergrads. How can we understand or explain how the United States government was able to do the incarceration because it so clearly appears to be racist and unconstitutional? So, so when I lived, I started my career here in Southern California, and there was an opportunity for me to teach at the El Toro Naval Station, which is no longer El Toro. I know it's been decommissioned, right? Military. It's a great park. It's what? It's a great park. It's a park. Okay. When it, when it was a military base, okay, I, I went down to, to teach U.S. history to the, to the military folk, and I had to go down for my interview. Okay, this is true. The part I'm about to tell you is not true. I'm doing it for comedy and education. I pull up and they've got a platform and then like a little house on the platform and then like a military guy with a clipboard. So when I'm looking out of the car and I look up at him, all I can see is the bottom of his pectoral muscle because he's a very you know, muscular guy. And uh, he says to me, why are you here? which is probably what you'd say when you're driving onto a military base. And I said, I want to touch a bomb. I didn't really, but I'm just saying that. I said, I want to go find the interview. But, and he would say to me, you can't touch a bomb. And I would say, this is a military base. You must have bombs here. I have never touched a bomb. I would like to touch the bomb. And he would say, you are not permitted to touch the bomb. You are permitted to go to this building to interview for your job. Here's the map. Here's how you do it. Here's a special permit. And drive on this road and park in that lot. By the way, I did all that. I walked in. They started an interview for Russian history. And I said, no, this is an interview for US history. I don't do Russian history. And they go, oh, we made a mistake. We advertised the wrong country. So um, my best imitation was to rush out of the room and go back to the car and leave the El Toro military base. Um, so, of course, this question is, why can't I touch a bomb? Because it's a military base. It's a top secret thing, and the only people who get to touch bombs are the people that the general in charge of the base say. And none of us have a problem with the fact that they're not going to let me touch a bomb, because that's the way it is. So, what President Franklin D. Roosevelt did with his executive order 
is he made the entire Western United States a military base. And then he put General John DeWitt in charge of the military base. And then General DeWitt was able to tell whichever people were on whatever part of his base where they could be and where they couldn't be. And he said, US citizens of Japanese descent can't be in militarily strategic areas like San Francisco, LA, Portland, and Seattle. They need to be moved to the military base in the more eastern part. And it's basically martial law. But that's how they could suspend the Constitution without suspending the Constitution. We, we can take two more questions. I, I was, I've been entertained enough that I haven't looked at my watch, so. Thank you. I guess I, I just want to take issue or question the use of the word racism with regard to the Japanese in the context of, in, in, of um, imprisonment or internment. And that is, if the Japanese had not bombed Pearl Harbor, I presume this would not have happened, that the Japanese in California would have gone on living whatever lives they were living. They were accumulating property. They had businesses. Um, they had neighbors. And so when, when you use the phrase that what occurred was racism against them, that contains an argument that that's what prompted their internment was this rampant racism as yeah. opposed to a response to a crisis. So right. I'm wondering how is it or why is it you're using that terminology? Yeah, so um, I'll give you the argument. But speaking of which. I guess we only have time for one more question. All right, the system is working. So, so here, yeah, so. So it, it's racism, it's pure and unadulterated, and, and here's how the argument goes. You need to look at um, four examples, and then I'll add a fifth in order to prove it. Um, we'll start with the most sympathetic way to portray what the US government did. And, and, and this is a question of what happens with the democracy in war. When the United States goes to war with Japan and Germany, the United States government has an obligation to protect its citizens from enemy aliens in its midst. That is a standard, legitimate response to being at war, which means every person with a German passport residing in the United States needs to be processed in some way so the US government can determine whether or not they are the enemy aiding, whether or not they happen to be a German citizen and they're gonna ship them home, whether they're gonna put them in jail, whatever the US government's gonna do. If you are a German with a German passport, you are an official enemy of America, and I'd say not a good place for you to be on December 9th, 1941, because war was declared on the 8th against Germany. Um, how about US citizens of German descent? There's about a gazillion of those, because after Britain, Germany was the largest country to send immigrants to the country. Um, US citizens, by the United States Constitution, um, are U.S. citizens and should not be treated any differently by the fact that an ancestor of theirs happened to come from Germany. And if there are people who are prejudiced against every German because they're from Germany, well, that happens too. But I will tell you, as a Jewish historian, here is the problem. Jewish refugees from Hitler that made it to America in the 1930s were designated enemy alien Nazis by the bureaucracy of the federal government because they had German passports. And the Jewish community leaders in New York, Jewish defense agencies, the first thing they did is they ran to the, to the military and said, if you're Jewish 
and you have a German passport, you're not a Nazi. You're a victim of the Nazi. Change your policy so the Jews don't get harassed because they've been harassed already and they were successful and they made that change. Now, if you are a um, Japanese national in the United States on December 7th, 1941, you absolutely must be interrogated, interviewed, and the US government needs to do whatever it needs to do to assess the threat that you pose and to do what it thinks you needs to do with the enemy living inside the country. And if you are a US citizen whose ancestors came from Japan, then you are protected by the, should be protected by the US Constitution. There should not be a dual loyalty claim unless there's some evidence to find a dual loyalty claim and you have a presumption of innocence. So what happened when it played out between German nationals, German Americans, Japanese nationals, and Japanese Americans um, is it played on race lines. Um, and in fact, General DeWitt, when he went to the Tallinn Commission to the, in the United States Congress to talk about what they were doing, said that Japanese, whether citizens or not, are a threat, are unassimilable, and are a fifth column. So by smushing together everyone on basis of national origin and race, not on citizenship or even if they were five generations back, because the, the oldest ones were five generations back, um, was an example of racism. But I only say that to lead in. I have to tell you the greatest example that proves the racism argument. Um, the reason that it was defended was the United States needs to defend secure installations on the West Coast. What part of the United States would be the most vulnerable to the Japanese, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, right? The Hawaiian Islands, far more than the West Coast of the United States. You need to incarcerate every single Japanese, a Japanese American. Like, like if there's gonna be a military claim, do it in Hawaii. There was no incarceration of any Japanese in Hawaii because one third of the population was of Japanese descent. And if they did that, they wouldn't be able to protect the islands from the Japanese. Thank you all very much. Thank you so much.